Amen. Uh, if you would go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing our walk through Matthew today. Uh, I think we started just before Christmas, um, and I'm not giving you a timeline. We'll be in Matthew for a while. Um, let the reader or hearer understand. Uh, it's going to be a bit, uh, especially as we slow down here in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, as we've been taking it one verse at a time, uh, that, that definitely kind of draws us out a little bit. Um, but today marks halfway through in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, uh, marks the halfway point in what's called the Beatitudes. And it's, it's just this section in Matthew chapter 5, part of this broader uh, sermon that Jesus is sharing with his disciples in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, but in verses 1 through 11, or 2 through 11, uh, he, he is telling his disciples what life in his kingdom looks like. Uh, and every week as we've been doing this, we've looked at the fact that uh, Jesus' kingdom is completely upside down from and backwards from every other kingdom that we would be a part of. Uh, because Jesus' kingdom calls us to recognize our complete inability to be a part of it before we can even have a taste of it, right? It, it, it requires us to rely completely on the work of somebody else and not on our own ability, uh, which is not something that any workplace or anything else would tell us to do, right? You don't go to work and they say just all of what you do today will be completely reliant on the work of the guy next to you. It doesn't matter what you do. Right? If you did that, you would have a job for probably not even a full day, uh, like half a day, and then say, hey, you're really not cut out for this. You're not working. Uh, go ahead and go home. But in Jesus' kingdom, we're invited and commanded, uh, encouraged to find everything in Jesus who has done it all on our behalf and, and not to rely on what we are bringing to the table. Um, and, and these statements are telling us, each of these blessed are, uh, followed by a statement, are telling us how a person rightly interacts with the Lord, and then because of that, how they rightly react and respond to other people. Uh, so today we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, continuing on with, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I'm going to read it again since it's only one verse, if we have the time. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The first question that comes out of us at this text that we have to answer before we go any farther is to really define what is mercy. Uh, we might feel like you heard the word mercy and you go, oh, I, know, I know what mercy is. Uh, but it's really important that we understand what it is before we make any other application. Otherwise, I'll just lead you in the wrong direction. I would suggest this morning that mercy for us is easy to confuse with grace. And we might even use mercy and grace interchangeably to talk about grace. Where grace is, and, and if you want to write it down just so you remember, you can do that or not. Uh, but if you have a coin, if you think about a coin, it's got two sides to it. Mercy and grace are, are very much related to one another, but they're not identical to each other. But they're, they're, they're connected in this. Grace is receiving something I don't deserve. So imagine grace is the receiving of a gift, right? So, so when you receive something that you didn't do anything to earn, that's grace, right? If you worked for it, it's not a gift, it's not grace. Mercy, on the other hand, is not receiving what I do deserve. This is when 
I am deserving of a right consequence that I have done what it takes to earn it. And for some reason, I don't get that. Like it's, so it's a negative thing that I don't experience that I deserve to experience. Right? Think about this. Like it, it, I, I use the example all the time of when you were a child and you broke something at home. Right? There was a consequence usually that was attached to that. If it, whether it was going to be you were grounded, you were going to clean it up, you were going to pay for a new lamp, you were going to like the whole gamut, right? And some of you are like, well, it was a little bit more hands-on in my time. Again, let the hearer understand. But there was an understanding that something had been earned through the action. And mercy was that moment when your parents realized that their stuff was broken, called you into the room, and you are ready for whatever it takes. You got books padded inside of your pants, ready for what's coming. And instead of getting whatever consequence it was that you knew was coming, they let you off the hook. Not because they didn't know what had happened, but because although you stood within their grip, their, their, like you were full within their right to discipline, they said, I'm going to let you go this time. Have you, you know, I, we like mercy. Like, we like grace, but man, I like mercy. Especially when I know that I've done something wrong. So you see how mercy and grace are connected here. So mercy is, is not receiving what I do deserve, and, and often, simultaneously, grace is extended where I'm given something I didn't deserve, right? So, so that, like they're, they're twins and that they're usually delivered pretty close to one another. Mercy and grace. So here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So being merciful, this is like, I'm not trying to take us on a deep English lesson this morning, but being merciful then would be being the one who gives mercy, the one who extends mercy to those who don't deserve it. So it is, if we put it another way, it is choosing to release someone else from what they rightly deserve and what I rightly have the ability to ask of them or demand of them. It's the choosing to release somebody who has wronged me. And they're within my grip, they're within my right to execute whatever consequence it might be. That's, that's where the phrase comes, right? I'm at your mercy. Usually it's like it's, it's the pleading of like, well, you, I, I'm at your mercy, meaning you can do with me what you see fit because it's within your right to do so. And the question I want you to hold on to for a minute as you think about that, we'll revisit it here in a few minutes, is why in the world would I forego my right to exact a right good consequence for a wrong that has been done to me? Why in the world would I choose to let go of my right to exact the consequence that somebody's actions have deserved? I want you to hold on to that question because, again, you think about Jesus' kingdom being upside down. How often in our culture and in the world around us do we see somebody who has the right to execute a consequence that says, no, I'm good, rather than, 
No, every penny. I want every penny for what you've done to me. Right? That's our culture. If you owe me, okay, how much do you owe me? Let's play this out to the, to, to the full extent. If, if you have wronged me, I will get what I rightly deserve because of what you've done. So why in the world, and, and, and keep in mind that normally this is attached to a right consequence. Like it's the, the, the executing of justice that is rightly deserved. Choosing to say, I'm not going to do that. I want you to hold on to that. Why would somebody, why would I let go of my right to do that? And so I want to spend a couple minutes before we recircle back to that question, just thinking of a biblical foundation of mercy. Because without this understanding of mercy, my answer to you would be no one would forgo their right. If we don't really understand mercy in the way that we have received it, then there's no way that I would extend it to somebody else. So I want to take us to two passages that I think use a lot of, uh, of language that we're not going to really love to hear about ourselves in order to kind of see what mercy looks like in Scripture. The first place I want you to go is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. It'll be on screen for you if you want to follow along there, or if you just want to listen to it, that's fine too. Or if you want to turn there, you can do that. Or you can write it down and go there later. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and he says this, starting in verse 6, Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." I want you to stick your finger there maybe for a moment, and, and let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to put two lists together in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Keeping your finger in Romans chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul writing to another church, this time in Ephesus, to another group of people who have come to faith in Jesus. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God." not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to make a, a left-hand column and a right-hand column. And if you're not, you can make a mental left-hand column and a right-hand column. In the left-hand column, you could, you could title it this way, who we were or who I was. In the right-hand column, we'll look in a minute and say, who am I now? In Christ. Who we were or who I was apart from God if we take these two verses or these two passages together, Romans 5 tells us that we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. Let me repeat that for you just in case you missed that. This is who, this is who we are apart from God doing something for us. We're weak, ungodly. Sinners who are marked by our sin and doing sinful things and enemies of God. And what Romans 5 says is that when we were all of these things, or maybe even this morning, as you sit here this morning, this is your spiritual reality. This is you apart from Jesus. This is where you were when God acted on your behalf. Now before we put that together and say, what, who are we now? Ephesians 2.1 adds to the list of who I am or who I was apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus, apart from God doing something on our behalf, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Like, spiritually dead. How much hope for life does a dead person have? Zero, right? How, how much can a dead person do? Have you ever seen the Olympics for dead people? I guess it, hey, it's a dead tie. Everybody gets a trophy in that one. It says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, so we're under the influence of the devil. Says that we were marked by living by uh, according to the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our bodies. It says by nature, because of our sin, who we were, we were children of wrath, children deserving the right wrathful judgment of a holy God. But it's interesting that in both of these passages, there's two words. They're the same in both passages that change all of this fundamentally. But God. This is, who, like, this is who we were. We were dead. We were broken. We were powerless. We were marked by our sin. There was nothing we could do to change it. We were dead in it. Serving and deserving separation and punishment. But God... Like if those two words aren't there, that is still our reality. If God doesn't do something for us, guess what? You and I, we're still spiritually dead. We are still spiritually in a tomb, unable to do anything to get out of it. Dead as enemies towards the God who created us. By our own doing. But God. And, in, and you notice that in both cases, in Romans chapter 5, it's in verse 8, he says, but God shows his love. And if I just stopped you right there, you go, that's a crazy 
crazy word to use of God towards those who are enemies of him. Not but God shows his justice and his strength. No, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners. Before we had cleaned up. While we were still spiritually dead in the tomb. While we were still enemies of his. While we were still pursuing the passions of our life and not having any thought for him. In that moment, God showed his love for us in this. He sent his son to die for us. We can talk a whole lot about things about how God is unfair or the world is unfair, but the height of unfairness is God sending His holy, perfect Son to die for sinful enemies of God. God sending His eternal Son across enemy lines into the hands of sinful people and saying, Him for you. Whatever else we might bring in this morning with us, we say, well, that's unfair. First of all, if you are in Christ, you have received the most unfair gift of grace that has ever been given. The mercy, you know, like what we have been let off of, right? What we were deserving. In chapter 5 of Romans is the wrath of God. In Ephesians 2, it's children of wrath, the wrath of God. The holy justice of God that, would be, that we rightly deserve. But God, in His great love for us, has acted on our behalf. Motivated for our good and not just for Himself. He is glorified in this, but He acts on behalf of sinful people. Over and over again in Romans chapter 5, the point at which this transformation or this invitation happens is over and over again. In verse 6, it's Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, it's Christ died for us. In verse... Uh, 10, it says, while we were uh, enemies of his, we were reconciled by his death. Over and over again, it's through Jesus' death that you and I are offered reconciliation or restoration towards who God is. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's, but God being rich in mercy because, again, of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. A death of our own doing. He loved us with such a great love that He made us alive together with Christ. So just a, a quick summary. Who we were. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, dead in sin, children of wrath following the passions of the flesh, pursuing those things to spiritual death. And then what does God do? He sends Jesus, His eternal Son, who dies for the ungodly, dies for sinners. Through uh, His death, He saves people from the right wrath which we deserve, and He reconciles enemies through the death of His Son. And over and over again in Ephesians chapter 2, then Paul is reminding, because of this, you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by His grace. You're saved by the good gift that you don't deserve. You're saved by the good gift that you don't deserve. Not through what you can do. There's nothing you can do to, to boast about. This is how awesome my faith is. Like, 
The whole point is this is how awesome of a Savior Jesus is. So then the question, I I recircle back to it, why in the world would I forego my right claim to exact right consequences from somebody who has wronged me? It can only be because I recognize the mercy I have received already in Jesus. The only reason why I would forgo my claim on somebody else is because I know what claim was forgiven on my part. In other words, I'm real familiar with that left-hand column. I know who I was. But then because of that, I also know the right-hand column. I know who I am now. It's not just that I understand, well, I'm really bad on the left-hand column, but in the right-hand column, you notice in Ephesians chapter 2, raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages we might realize the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Created by him to do good things, not because we have it in and of ourselves, but because he created us in this for us. So because I'm real familiar with the left-hand column and what has been forgiven me is the only way, the only motive that I would say I can give somebody else grace that doesn't even measure up to what I have received. In fact, this is going to be a a continuing theme in the book of Matthew. Just two quick spots to turn in Matthew as as we wrap up this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Next chapter, uh, it might be a while before we get there, so it's okay that I touch on it now. We're familiar with Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. Right? He, he, he delivers them, or they ask him to teach them how to pray. He, he shares with them what we call now uh, the Lord's Prayer. And then he closes, though, in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now what it sounds like, if we took that in a vacuum, we would say, well, the, 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 that is a work. So the, the secret to, for, to receiving forgiveness from Jesus is just, I just need to forgive other people. But it's coming out of, here's, here's the deal, right? You have, if you have a car, um, you have the little nice little panel in front of you where the lights go on and off occasionally. Uh, hopefully you pay attention to those things. What Jesus is telling his disciples and what he would tell you and I is that forgiveness in our lives is a little light that's on the dashboard that's telling us the condition of our heart and how we've received forgiveness. Like when, when there is a lack of forgiveness in our heart or when we're holding on, when we find it easy to hold on to and, and nurse those grudges and, re, and not release people from the wrongs that they have done, there's, there's a little warning light on the instrument panel of our heart saying, are you remembering how you've been forgiven? Are you remembering the grace that has been given to you in Jesus? Have you, if you've received mercy, are you giving mercy? If you receive forgiveness, are you giving forgiveness? And here's the problem with forgiveness. We all, I, I said it before, I love receiving mercy. One of my favorite things in the whole world is receiving mercy. Getting off the hook. I deserve that. Wow, you didn't exact it from me. That, that feels great. You know one of the hardest things for me to do? Give mercy. 
Like, we can all say, how do you feel when you have been given grace and you've received mercy? Anybody say, that's a nasty experience, never want it again? No, we love it. But then how much struggling and wrestling in our hearts goes on when it is time to extend it to someone else? And Jesus is telling us, if we presume to stand on and receive the forgiveness that he gives us in his death, burial, and resurrection, then it ought to also be something that is freely being given out of us. I'm not saying that means it's an easy process. And I'm not saying it's not something that we don't struggle through. But if there is no desire in my heart to forgive or to show mercy, there's a check engine on a thing in our heart saying, have we received mercy? If I am absolutely unwilling to release somebody from their debt, when I have been released from the greatest debt I could ever owe, have I received mercy? If it is easy for me to cross my arms and go, but you don't understand what they've done to me. I encourage you to go back to Romans chapter 5 and Ephesians 2. Do you know who you were before the God of the universe? Running away from Him and running your own course which led to death. And in the worst place that you possibly could have been, you were given mercy. Undeserved. And you were given grace unearned. And then from that place, can you honestly say, that person still doesn't deserve this? Jesus actually, later on in Matthew, it's why I wanted to finish here. Matthew chapter 18, he gives a really hard parable, or potentially hard parable. Jesus' parables are a teaching uh, using a real-life example that's to be applied to our spiritual lives. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 25, a parable that we might be familiar with, may not be familiar with. But he's following a question. One of his disciples, Peter, comes up and asks him, how often do I have to forgive people when they wrong me? How often do I have to forgive my brother when he sins against me? Am I required to forgive him? Do I have to do it seven times? Like, let's be honest. Seven, seven times forgiving somebody, that's a lot. How many of us want to forgive the same person seven times? Like in, in Peter's case, we're like, man, he's being generous. Can we say three? Is three enough? And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then he gives this illustration. In other words, you just keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The idea of 10,000 talents is roughly equivalent, I think, of like $2 million or $20 million. This is a lot of money. Called to account that day. The guy doesn't have it. So the, the king orders that he pay for it with his life, his family, and everything else. But verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice what the servant asked for. Just give me more time and I'll pay it. And what does the king do? He says, no, you're released from it, all of it. You don't have to repay it. A huge debt. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about a day's worth of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then notice he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We might look at forgiveness as an optional uh, addition or accessory into our life in Christ, but Jesus is teaching all throughout Matthew. This is a fundamental truth of who we are if we're in the kingdom. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven give mercy because they've received mercy. And then what's amazing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7 is what is the promise that is also given? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. It's interesting, right? It's like this continual loop of mercy. First started by the fact that when we were dead, God showed us mercy and started the cycle where we can now show mercy. And he continues to give mercy and continues to give mercy. The mercy that he gave was not a one-time gift of grace, but an ongoing necessity for your life in Christ. So one of the things that I would challenge you with as we, as we get ready to close this morning, and I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think on it. I'm going to invite our worship team up. Jason's just going to, she's just going to pluck a little bit. Give you a minute before we just dive right into the next song. I want to encourage you to ask this question. What have you been forgiven of? What has God forgiven you of? If you've never experienced the grace, the love, and the mercy of God that brings peace, there's probably a high chance you're not likely to extend grace and mercy to somebody else. So if you go, there's just this huge void or lack of forgiveness in my heart. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's two, two, two simple answers probably. One is, We need to come back to the starting place of what have I received? What have I been forgiven of? And as you're reminded of what you've been forgiven of, uh, you'll be amazed at how much easier it is than in turn and say, you know what? I can forgive that because of who I was. But God didn't leave me there. The second part, though, might be you've just never experienced it And you need to come and taste and see that God is full of grace and mercy this morning. That you need to respond to Him in faith. Not because of what you've done, but because of His rich grace and faith, mercy towards you. On the other hand, if you have been transformed from darkness to light, brought from death to life, 
It went from being an enemy to a son or a daughter. Went from living in despair to living in the light of an eternal hope and a living hope. I hope it would be true to say you want other people to experience that. One of the things that we say about our church and, and what we've worked on in our disciple-making strategies is to say that we are a people of radical invitation. Radical being a complete transformation of who we are. That's what we've experienced. So that's what we want to share. This is what God does through Jesus. A lack of mercy leads to a lack of mercy. But where mercy and grace abound, there is life-giving hope. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy.